all right? I don't mean just existing, of course. I mean, uh, that obviously is true, but uh, but I think that's the first time I've ever been unintentionally funny. Um, but, uh, uh, but also in the fact that, you know, if you're like me, your mother had a tremendous amount of spiritual influence in your life. And the fact that you are here in this place, in a church worshiping God, has a lot to do with the fact that your mother had an influence on you and through you and with you. And so I thank God for my mother, um, as do I know uh, many of you. Uh, thank God for your mothers. Uh, some of you might even thank God for my mother. I don't know. We'll see. But, um, <laughs> um, but I want to uh, look with you at the book of Acts this morning. It's not really a Mother's Day message per se, um, as, as we're just kind of continuing on uh, with our study. But it does deal with something that moms have to get pretty good at, and that is uh, dealing with conflict uh, in a family. And just like just like families, just like brothers and sisters, I mean, we have this speech that we give at our house about, it seems like about 55 times a day. I know it's not really that many, but it seems like it, where you go, this is your brother, this is your sister, can't you get along, right? I mean, for five minutes, can't we leave you alone so that you can get along with each other? And that is a human characteristic, Right? That people, when they, when they are in close relationship and in close proximity with one another, that they fight like cats in a gunny sack. Uh, they fight. And uh, here this morning, we're going to see how the early church dealt with the first conflict that, it, that comes up. And then what happens in the life of one of those particular men that they selected to deal with it and to mediate it and to solve it for them. So it's a pretty exciting passage, and we're short on time, so I'm going to uh, just dig in, all right? Um, Acts chapter 6, we're going to do the whole chapter today. It's a short chapter, but uh, follow along as I read here, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over, them, over to them and will give, them, give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom, against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. 
So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear your word this morning as we celebrate our mothers. Father, we pray that you would be our Father indeed, and that you would uh, gently correct where we need correcting, that you would encourage where we need correcting, and that you would help us grow in, in all ways and in all, uh, in all hearts and at all times. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you go back to chapter uh, to, to the beginning of the chapter there in verse 1, you see that you've got two groups of people that are in conflict within the church. You've got a set that are called the Grecian Jews, and you've got a set called the Hebraic Jews. Now, the Grecian Jews are people who were not native to the area of, around Jerusalem. Uh, they would have been from perhaps uh, Alexandria in Egypt or from Rome or from Cilicia like Paul. Uh, or from Asia, or from Ephesus, or from other places around the, the Roman Empire. And they would have spoken probably two languages, their native tongue from the area they grew up in, as well as Greek, which was the trade language of the Roman Empire that everybody spoke. But they were greatly influenced by Greek culture. And they probably could not read the Bible in Hebrew. They probably read it in what was called the Septuagint, which was a, a Greek translation made about 140 B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt. And that would have been their Bible uh, because they would not have been able linguistically to make the jump over to Hebrew. And they would have been culturally very different. And also because this is the area surrounding Jerusalem, they would have been the minority, very likely, within the church. They would have been a much smaller group. Uh, You've also got the Hebraic Jews, uh, and they would have been the majority group, probably. They would have spoken Aramaic. Uh, Ancient Hebrew had died out by their day. Uh, But Aramaic is a sister language to Hebrew. And it's close enough that if you know Aramaic, you can read and understand Hebrew. And they would have spoken Aramaic. Uh, They probably also would have spoken Greek, because again, it was the trade language. But their native tongue would have been Aramaic. And they would have considered themselves, uh, as Jews did in those days, The closer you lived to Jerusalem, and especially if you lived in Jerusalem as a Jew, you considered yourself kind of on a higher level of spiritual uh, maturity and a higher spiritual plane than than all the other Jews in the world, and especially more so than Gentiles. Um, And so these folks have a conflict uh, with one another because apparently, you know, an action in... Uh, let's see, back in um, it's chapter 2, I believe it is, uh, it talks about how the, the, uh, there's, there's a continual meal and a continual breaking of bread. And, of course, we see in chapter 5 how um, Ananias and Sapphira ran afoul of God because they were trying to represent that they were contributing to the work of, of distributing uh, money to the poor. 
uh, even though they weren't really in exactly the way that everybody else was, and are kind of being hypocrites and lying about it. And, and as part of its ministry, the, the church is, is, is collecting money from its members to feed the poor. And part of these poor people are, uh, are Hebraic Jews and part of them are Grecian Jews. And since the Hebraic Jews are probably the majority in the church, they're the ones probably who have positions of leadership and they're the ones who are overseeing the distribution of food. And the Grecian Jews, who are already feeling a little marginalized probably, uh, start to be offended, start to have some hurt feelings, and say, look, you you guys are overlooking our widows. But I want you to see um, what they do here to solve this. Because this is brilliant. This is just brilliant. Uh, The twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among yourselves. Uh, What you see here is that the the apostles are probably, they're probably like Moses. You know, Moses gets afoul of his father-in-law at one point because his father-in-law takes him aside and says, Listen now, boy, get some advice. Uh, you're wearing yourself out making all the people come to you. You need to appoint some subsidiary leaders underneath you so that they can deal with some of the less important or less pressing issues or less urgent issues, and you will have time to dredge the important cases, and everybody will get justice in a more expedient fashion. Uh, In a similar way, the apostles are wearing themselves out. There's 12 of them, and there's probably about 20,000 believers that they're trying to shepherd and lead, and they're wearing themselves out. And they, they probably are overlooking the, uh, the Grecian Jew widows in the distribution of food. They've got a huge job ahead of them, and so they don't really know. So there's people falling through the cracks, and they, they want to make sure that that doesn't happen. He says, well, well, let's look at what we're supposed to be doing, and what we're supposed to be doing is preaching and teaching and praying. Remember, that's, that's our job as apostles. We're supposed to do that. So that's what they, they say, well, we need to be devoted to that. And then he t- they tell the group, well, choose seven men from among yourselves. Now, look at the seven men that they choose. I want you to see their names. You've got Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. There's not one Hebrew name in there. Not one. There's no Michael, no Samuel, uh, no uh, David, and none of that. Uh, it's all Greek names. You know why? Because the whole church got together and they decided, well, we've got a problem, and these folks who are from this ethnic uh, linguistic background are being overlooked. So to solve the problem, we're going, we're going to not have representative government here. We're not going to say, okay, well, we're going to have four guys that are Aramaic-speaking and three guys that are Greek-speaking because that's about the proportion uh, within the congregation. They just say, well, we're just going to make sure that all of them are Greek. How about that? How would that be? I think that's amazing because what does that show? That shows that the church as a whole cares enough and loves these women who are being overlooked enough to make sure that that never happens again. And they make sure that all 
of the men they appoint are from the group who feels offended. Now that is conflict resolution. All of the members of the group that are appointed to deal with the conflict are from the group who was offended. And I think that's amazing. In fact, they even appoint a guy who was born a Gentile. Uh, this guy, um, Nicholas, who's from Antioch. Uh, we don't hear anything else about him ever after this. But we see that he's a convert to Judaism, which means he's born a Gentile, born an uncircumcised fella, uh, who converted to Judaism, and they appoint him as one of the guys. And they look at... And these guys actually become the pattern, these seven guys, become the pattern for what become known as deacons. Because their service, the word for their service that they're supposed to render is diakonia in Greek. And it means to serve. And so a deacon is one who serves. right? And later on, um, these seven guys are going to become the pattern for an office within the church called deacon. You know, if you grew up kind of like I did, you know, you knew how, who the deacons were in the church because they were the guys with big tummies and short ties. Okay, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You know, deacons, right? Um, but here's how they were supposed to be picked, all right? Um, it says that they looked for guys known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, right? Nope, pompadour haircut is not listed, I notice, but... Um, but full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And what that means is, is that we want guys who, who understand the things of God and who understand how to apply them to practical circumstances and whose lives are characterized by obedience to the Spirit of God, right? That's what full of the Spirit means. When you're full of the Spirit, you produce the things the Spirit does. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Right, that whole list Galatians five twenty two and twenty three, um, the fruit of the spirit. When you're full of the spirit, you do these things, and uh, and I think and I think this is just an amazing process that they go through. I mean, I don't know if you've ever um, been in conflict with anybody. Probably not. Probably it's only me who's ever had a fight with their spouse or. Uh, had to mediate a conflict between your children or anything like that. But I think this is amazing that there's enough love in this group of people that they decide, you know what, rather than have continual conflict, we're just going to make sure that these women are never overlooked again because we're going to appoint their friends to take care of them and make sure that they're taken care of. People from their same ethnic and linguistic uh, and probably geographic background, we're going to appoint the the offended to make this work. Uh, years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Mark of the Christian. And in, he, in it, he wrote, you know, Francis Schaeffer was a great apologist. You know, in other words, he had a lot of great arguments proving that Christianity was true and that the Bible was reliable and that there is a God who is there. In fact, that was a title of one of his books, The God Who Is There. And at the end of his life, he wrote this book called The Mark of the Christian, and he said that love is the final apologetic. Or to put it another way, as I heard another pastor say 
one time. He said, you know, even the hardest atheist will melt in the presence of a guy who remembers his birthday. And that's true. And in fact, what you see in this passage is exactly that. That as this conflict is resolved, the word of God spreads. Why? Because that kind of love that you see here, you don't see out there on 29. Or downtown in Peoria, or at the Caterpillar plant where you work. Or sometimes even in our own home. And when you see that kind of love demonstrated between people, that I would rather have my own rights subverted that you and I be restored to relationship with one another. It becomes very attractive, and people can't stay away. And it says, in fact, verse 7, the word of God spread, and the number of disciples increased rapidly. Why did it increase rapidly? Because love like that is attractive. It certifies that what you're saying about Jesus and about God is true because it must be. It's the only place you find this kind of love. And it says that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now that is amazing. Think about this. These are the people who were the religious officials under the old system who would lose their jobs if they became followers of Jesus. Right? Because to become a follower of Jesus is to say that he fulfilled the Old Testament promises and the Old Testament sacrificial system in his own body. And so to become a follower of Jesus as a priest, when you and by the way, priests, by and large, according to the Mosaic Law, did not own anything. They were not allowed to own property in the land. And so to, to become a follower of Jesus as a priest is to renounce not only your job, but any hope you have of making any money ever. The only thing you're trained for is to be a priest. Now you've got to figure out how to hammer nails for a living or dig ditches or something. And you go from being one of the highest, most respected people in the community to now being Virtually nobody. But why are people willing to do that? Because they see this kind of love demonstrated in the church, testifying that what these people believe in is real and true. And in fact, you see, uh, they start to see the actions of one particular man. And this is something Luke commonly does. Well, He'll introduce a, a character like Stephen in a small way earlier on and then in a big way later. And Stephen's going to have a big role. And you see how he became prominent in the church because he, he was one of the deacons. And he's a remarkable fellow. Uh, if you look through this passage here in chapter 6, you see Luke gives him five different adjectives to describe him. He says that he is, he twice says that Stephen was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Two different places he says that. Uh, he also says that Stephen was full of faith and of wisdom, and of God's grace, and power. And he had a demonstrated power, in fact. It says he did one, hello, uh, great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. In other words, I, I imagine he was healing people. Uh, the text doesn't say, but you know, perhaps he was able to raise somebody from the dead, uh, cast out demons, these kinds of things that the apostles commonly did. 
uh, in the early days of the church. And some, some troublemakers come. And they're from a group called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. These, that means they're probably people who's, either whose parents or ancestors, at least, or themselves were originally slaves. And they built this synagogue to celebrate the fact that God had, by his grace, enabled them to be set free from slavery. And they're from a variety of different places. Uh, the country of Cyrene is in North Africa, be about modern-day Libya, somewhere in there. Uh, Cilicia is the eastern part of modern-day Turkey. That's where the Apostle Paul was from, by the way. That's where Tarsus is. Uh, and Asia, the province of Asia, is in the western part of modern-day Turkey, out on the, out on the Black Sea uh, and the Aegean Sea there in the Mediterranean. And these guys began to stir up trouble for Stephen. They see what he's doing. They see that priests now are beginning to abandon their Jewish faith, and to become Christians. And it becomes a problem. And so they hire some guys to stir up trouble and to, and to spread false witness against him. Uh, and notice in verse 11 what they start saying. We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Now, how do you blaspheme Moses? I'm curious on that one. Last I checked, Moses is not God. Right? He's still a man. But guess where they're, guess, you know, in their theology, they've put Moses, you know, God's here and Moses is like right there. And so what the kind of things that Stephen is saying, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law and you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore, are offensive to them. And in fact, I think what they're doing is they're actually quoting him accurately but they're quoting him out of context. And in that sense, bearing false witness against him. He says, he never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down. Uh, probably what, Jesus, what, what Stephen is saying is very much what Jesus was saying. Jesus, you remember, predicted that one day Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies and that the temple itself that not one stone would stand on another. That happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in under Titus and destroyed everything, leveled it. And all that is left is what is today known as the Wailing Wall, which is the western wall, which is the support wall of the temple. But the temple structure itself on top of that place is gone. And there was not one stone left on another because they set fire to the city, managed to set fire to the temple, and the gold on the interior walls of the temple melted. And so the Roman soldiers came and pried apart every one of the rocks to get at the gold that had melted down in between them. And so Stephen is probably quoting Jesus accurately. This temple is going to be destroyed. And guess how it's going to happen? Because Jesus is going to cause it to happen. And it, and it is a change in the customs that Moses handed down, right? Because he's saying, we don't need to keep the law anymore. Why? Because I have fulfilled the law in Christ. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, and I am in him, and we no longer have to keep the law. Because I have already kept it in Jesus, and I'm related to him. And so probably, there's probably some truth here in what they're saying. Um, 
Jesus is God, and he did say that the temple would be destroyed, so anything that happens is in some sense the will of God. And the temple was going to be destroyed, and it was. Um, he was preaching probably that the Mosaic law was good, but then it was temporary and had been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, that the new covenant had come. That so you no longer need to keep the old covenant because the new covenant had come in, been inaugurated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And now the dwelling place of God was no longer in a building on top of a hill, but now in the hearts of men and women and children who follow Jesus. And so it is a change in the customs that Moses handed down. Uh, but it was a fulfillment of what Jeremiah and Ezekiel had said, that, in the, that there will be a, a day when I write the law not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. And that had happened. But they're leaving all that explanatory part out. And they're just saying he's against the law. He doesn't want us to keep the Mosaic law. And he's encouraging other people not to keep the Mosaic law. And he's against the temple. And he says that Jesus is going to tear down the temple. And we need to get him. Because he's a troublemaker. Now remember too, this is something else interesting about these charges. What was Jesus accused of? What did he die on the cross for? I realize he died on the cross for our sins, but what was the actual crime that he went on trial for before the Sanhedrin? Blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Why is Stephen on trial? Blasphemy. Because you are preaching that this man that we killed for blasphemy is actually the Son of God. Same charge, essentially just that one said he himself was God, and the other said, yes, that man, in fact, was and is who he claimed to be. He was God. Jesus talked about, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And, of course, he, they misunderstood him. But they brought false witnesses to his trial that said, this man said he could destroy the temple. Just like Stephen. They said about Jesus, this man encourages people to break the law and is a lawbreaker, the friend of tax collectors and sinners, right? A glutton and a drunkard. And they're saying here, Jesus is going to change the customs Moses handed down to us. And this is what this guy is preaching. And he's dangerous. We've got to get rid of him. Um... And all those charges in, are, in, are in some measure accurate, even though they're false. There's some truth to what they're saying. They're just leaving out the context and any kind of explanatory stuff. And this is as high pressure as it gets, because Stephen is on trial for his life. He's in front of it. You know, I've described the Sanhedrin before as being like the joint session of Congress. This is as serious a trial as you can be in. This is the highest religious and civil court in the land. If to go to a capital crime, you've got to go to the Romans. But we're going to see later in next week that that's no deterrent to what they do. Stephen's on trial for his life, facing the same kind of charges, very similar charges, in fact, to the ones of Jesus. And he's going to have the same result as we're going to see next week. 
But look what he look how he responds. It says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Why does Luke tell us that? I mean, that seems kind of a, an irrelevant detail, what his face looked like. Why does that matter? Because I think Luke wants us to know that God is with Stephen. Even though this is bad. And this is bad. Next week, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but next week they're going to take Stephen outside and turn him into a rock pile. This is as bad as it gets. And yet Stephen is at peace. In fact, it says his face is like the face of an angel. Why is that? Because God is with him. And I think that's the major point of this passage, by the way. That God is with his people no matter the circumstances. When there was conflict in the church, God was with his people. And he helped them to choose men who were capable of solving it. Because they picked men who were what? Full of the Spirit. Where was God? He was with his people. And when Stephen became a leader in the church, where was God? He was with Stephen. And when Stephen encountered opposition, even despite all the good things he was doing, where was God? With Stephen. And when he's in in front of the Sanhedrin on trial for his life, facing the same charges and eventually the same outcome, death, as Jesus, where is God? He's with his people. He's with Stephen. And personally, I, I just want us, as we're, as we're thinking about this, you know, we, we go through difficult circumstances a lot of times, but God is with his people no matter the circumstances. Stephen is staring death in the face, and he knows God is with me. Because God is with his people no matter the circumstances. And, and as we come together to worship this morning, uh, I'll be honest, I'll, you know, I'm looking out on, on some, a lot of faces that are familiar, but on some that I, I, I don't recognize and, and people that I don't know. And so I don't know all the burdens that you come with to this place. All of the hurts in your heart all of the difficulties that you're experiencing at the moment or that you have gone through. But here's what I do know, that God is with his people no matter the circumstances. You might be out of work and you might not know how ends are going to meet because there seemed to be a, a pretty big gap and a pretty small stretcher you're able to use to connect them. But I know this, God is with his people no matter their circumstances. You might have children or a spouse or even an ex-spouse or two or three. And you might have family members or a teammate or a church member that you are having real difficulty with. Because we do. We have challenges, you know. Uh, we we fight with with one another. We uh, have trouble getting along with each other in our families, in our churches, in our workplace. 
on the highway? <laughs> when anybody ever done that, right? You, you know, I'll show him, you know. Um, and, and we can relax and we can trust God knowing that he is with us no matter the circumstances, right? You might be going through health problems or have gotten one of those diagnoses that we all fear. You know, you have cancer. You have another chronic illness. You have something untreatable. You have something incurable. But God is with his people, no matter their circumstances. You might be coming here this morning, and you're just simply flat tired and depressed and feeling beat down by the circumstances of your life. But I have good news for you. God is with you because God is with his people no matter the circumstances. God is with you this morning regardless of your circumstances. Let's pray.